grateful that we can have this one day a week to come together and not work today, to gather together to hear from your word and be fed at your table, and to be equipped to do the work you've called us to do. And as we look at this challenging passage today, I pray that the marks of a true Christian would be encouraged in our lives. Where we need exhortation, you would exhort us, Holy Spirit. Where we need your mercy and grace, you would provide it for us, Lord. And that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When I was in high school, I remember my rector at Truro, John Howe, preaching on this passage, and it was the middle of football season. Now, you have to understand, back in our day, the Washington Redskins and Dallas Cowboys were fierce rivals like the Browns and the Steelers were, and kids were from all over the nation, right? And so there was as many Cowboys fans as there were Redskins fans, and I hated them. I was a Redskins fan. Sonny Jurgensen, Billy Kilmer, and just Charlie Taylor, and all these great people there in the Hall of Fame. It was great. And then my rector says, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you. And I said, uh-uh. <laughs> Not me. But then, who's speaking to us? It's the Lord. So I was challenged about how I treated people from this passage because the fellowship was quite rigorous in that rivalry in my high school. I mean, smack talk was a love language and so we had creative names for the other team not to be mentioned. And so starting when I was 15, 16, 17 years old has been a lifelong journey of how we bless those who persecute us bless those who differ from us. And that's where Paul is. We're wrapping up our journey today on what it means to be a peaceable people. And in so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with everyone. We started this journey at the beginning of August, working through Romans 12, where Paul reminded us, in view of God's mercies, in view of all the mercy that has been extended to us in the cross of Jesus Christ, Therefore, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's the only reasonable way to respond to the cross. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may be able to discern what the will of God truly is for our lives, what is good and acceptable and perfect for our lives. And three weeks ago, we were reminded that we're, we're, we all have a gift to be used in the kingdom. Every single one of us gathered here this morning matters and has a gift. You may not think you do. You do. You matter. And we need your help. Last week, we then, Paul, turned to what it means to love one another within the body of Christ. And we were challenged in that. Well, here's where the rubber really hits the road for us. How do we love those who don't return that love? So, what we're going to learn today, first, is that we see love in action in verses 14 through 16. And then 17 through 21, we see specifically what love, like, what love looks like when we've been wronged. 
So let's look at this. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're going to focus on verses 14 through 21. It's also in the back of your bulletin. If you're a guest here this morning, we welcome you. We're glad you're here with us. First, we see love in action. We immediately know that a radical relationship with the world is in view with this supernatural injunction in verse 14 to bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. This is the radical way of Jesus as given in the Sermon on the Mount. You could say this is Paul's Sermon on the Mount. He's basically just repeating the Sermon on the Mount in several places. More than speaking well of one's enemies, it includes praying for their forgiveness and praying for their blessing. I told you this is countercultural. <laughs> it's one thing not to curse your enemies, but another thing entirely to pray for their blessing. This is a life changing call. Arab culture has a wonderful custom that, though practiced with different levels of sincerity, it symbolizes what is called for here. You will see a person from the Middle East touch their head, their lips, and their heart, saying, I think highly of you, I speak well of you, and my heart holds you. It's quite beautiful when you think about it. What a way to love and bless the world. Now, I think it's worth mentioning for us as we're out in the community where we live, work, and play to remind ourselves of our tactical approach of gossiping the gospel and being witnesses out in the community. One thing Greg Kokel has taught me is that through the tactical approach is, you know, just to use questions, not further my agenda, but let them see what they believe and expose the flaws of it, perhaps. Remember, the tactical approach is get them to define their terms. What do you mean by that? Two, reverse the burden of proof. How did you reach that conclusion? And three, make a point by using questions. So this happened last winter when I was at Jake's. You know, on Thursday nights, I hang out at Jake's. We have a golf team on Thursday nights at Christ Church. We invite next year to some of you people who like to play golf. Come on and join us. We have a good time Thursday nights. But we're just getting out in the community, meeting people. And this conversation came up at Jake's last year. Someone said, you know, I, I could be part of a church except that I find Christians so judgmental. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, you know, you, you, we shouldn't judge people. There's no place for you to judge other people at all. It's wrong to judge. And I said, well, if it's wrong to judge, why are you judging right now? They put it on the table. I could have said, well, you know, you're judging right now. That would have been a fight. But instead, ask a question, why are you judging me? Turn it into a conversation where we could go further. Another conversation which I've had, which you will hear all the time, is why are you pushing your view on me? Right? You Christians, you're always pushing your, your views on me. So a question of that is, is that your view? You know, then why are you pushing your view on me right now? We all have a view. We're all evangelists. We all want people to agree with us. And the bottom line is the tactical approach keeps us safe, 
it, you, we don't necessarily make a truth claim through it. We get to that, hopefully, but I, I'm not advancing my argument, but I'm using questions to point out a weakness or a flaw in that person's view. And there are dozens of dozens of ways of doing this, and no two conversations go the same way twice, and you only get better as you do it. So I encourage you, friends, we can let our love be genuine and bless those who persecute us just by asking questions. Get them to clarify their terms, ask a question, reverse the burden of proof, and use questions. Well, with that said, Paul commit, continues with love in action with the next step in verse 15. He's continues with saying, rejoice those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Believers are to identify with the war ups and downs of human life, both inside and outside of the church. The world, according to Chuck Swindoll, is characterized by indifference, non-commitment, disengagement. It's cold, no sharing or caring, no meals eaten, you know, all we have are headphones on, speakers turned up loud, separate bedrooms with a personal telephone, TV, and turntable, and private toilet. And it's none of your business attitude. No hassle, no conflict, no accountability, no need to share, no need to reach out, or even to give a rip. Just watch the numbers and look at nobody. That's the world we live in, and yet, we Christians step into this, and we weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And that's a tonic to our culture, and it's the light of Christ being shown. George Fox, the great Quaker, recorded this in his diary. He said, I prayed to God that he would baptize my heart into all conditions so I might be able to enter the needs and conditions of all. It's beautiful, isn't it? The call to love is radical indeed. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You could put it another way. A sorrow shared is but half a trouble. A joy that's shared is a joy made double. And so Paul leads perfectly from that thought to the next in verse 16 where he says, Therefore we live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. A great example of that is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in the 1930s. Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes. He moved to Washington, and being a Baptist, he was a Christian his whole life. His dad was a Baptist minister. He moved to Washington, so he had his letter transferred to the local Baptist church. And it's the tradition that once a month they, they bring all the new members forward, and they introduce them to the congregation. So on this particular Sunday, the first to be called was a Chinese laundromat owner named Ah Singh. Mr. Singh came forward and stood over by the pulpit, and 12 more people were called forward, and they stood away, a distance away from Mr. Singh until the Chief Justice was called. Chief Justice rose and significantly stood next to the laundromat owner. 
Christians, we are to associate with everyone, the ordinary people, the unimportant, the outcasts of our society. So verses 14 to 16 call us for a caring heart that's vulnerable to the world. A Christian who's elitist in their attitude, who only associates with people of the same intellectual or academic or professional interests is not living up to what the scripture mandates for his people. We're to have a heart to be open to the world, to pray for those who persecute us, to enter each other's joys and sorrows, to associate with anyone whose path we cross. If we're open to how the Lord's at work and we will cross paths with many who are unlike us, praise be to God. And so then Paul turns in verse 17 to how do we deal with those who wrong us? What do we do? It's explicit counsel for living in a hostile world. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Echoing the Sermon on the Mount, Paul proclaims is supremely radical because it's absolutely supremely unnatural to each and every one of us. Our default sitting is to hit back, to strike back. The world says common sense demands getting even. However, there's a better way by doing life God's way. And it has two elements. First, we trust God in dealing with people who oppose us in our message. He says in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We must trust the work of the Lord in the other person's life who's wronged us, leaving room for wrath to let the vengeance of God do its work because he also smites in order to heal. Isaiah 19.22 God's wrath may one day come in and ultimately judge those who abuse us, but his wrath may also bring our enemies to trust him to the praise of his glorious grace. But whatever happens, God will be perfectly equitable. We can trust him to do the work he's going to do. But vengeance is his, not ours. And so there's first trusting the Lord with people who oppose us, but also it's to do them positive good. Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. In other words, in doing good to our enemies, we will heap burning pangs of shame and contrition upon them that hopefully, not surely, will lead them to faith in Christ. The best of example of this in all of Scripture is the way David dealt with King Saul. It's an amazing testimony. Saul is going after and pursuing David to kill him. 
And David has been so close to Saul in the cave that he cut off the corner of the king's robe in the middle of the night. He could have killed him, but he didn't. Why? Because this is the king's anointed. Listen to David's word as Saul comes out of the cave. David is a little far off and yells across the valley to him and says, My lord, my king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, and though you hunt my life to take it, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. Talk about coals of fire being heaped on Saul's head. Saul responds and said, Is this the voice of my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. It's beautiful. And those of us who were in the first Samuel study a couple years ago, we all look at this and go, well, certainly Saul's going to turn. Did he? No. Sadly, he never opened himself up to God's grace, though he could have. David left it to the Lord. The great early 20th century comedian W.C. Fields was no Christian. And towards the end of his life, a friend found him flipping through the Bible and was kind of surprised. He goes, what are you doing? He says, looking for loopholes. <laughs> looking for loopholes. Brothers and sisters, in relation to this text, there are no loopholes. I couldn't hate cowboy fans anymore. I couldn't smack talk cowboy fans anymore. Paul, we're not only not to avenge ourselves, we're to do positive good to our enemies. And if we have any plans to the contrary, it's purely of the devil. You might think, this is impossible, Gene. I can't do this. Not at all. Our model is our Lord himself. So Paul closes loving our enemies with, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Well, if, if you're like me after reading this passage on Monday, and if you're like anybody who reads the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, you go, I can't do that. And that's right. We can't in our own strength live this way. We merely need to go back to verse 1. Therefore, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, present yourselves to God. That's where Paul really begins, and this is where he ends. You look at Jesus' sacrifice. You view it, and you both understand why we have to overcome evil in this way, and it gives you the intellectual resources and the emotional resources to live the crucified life. The mercy of God on the cross informs us that God takes our sins seriously. Jesus Christ went to the cross too, and at the same time show that evil could be punished, yet it had to be overcome in us without destroying us. And when Jesus died on the cross, he shows sin is serious. And the average person in our lives where we live, work, and play doesn't see it that way. Because the world isn't realistic about our sin. Jesus dying on the cross proves that sin and selfishness radically in the human heart is much more serious than we think. He cares about justice and truth. And Jesus dying on the cross so we can be forgiven shows at the same moment he hates evil and yet he will overcome evil in us. He will break it as we receive him as Savior and Lord. And as we do so, not only are our sins forgiven, we can enter into relationship with him and be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The fact is, love without justice, malice, and justice without, no, that's, that's appeasement. Love without Justice without love is malice. Those are the ways of the world. And those are easy. To pray for a person who's wronged you. And still try to give that person a chance who's wronged you. That's costly. But that's the way of the cross and that's the way of the Christian. We must understand this. To forgive is tremendously costly. It costs Jesus everything. Every day you have to remind your spouse, don't keep bringing that up. (laughs) To make peace with somebody who you have wronged is tremendously costly. And at most, what we try to do is rationalize our behavior, right? Well, I didn't do the right thing, but she didn't do the right thing either. Right? No, it's much more costly to go and say, tell me how you feel. May I share with you how I feel? And you work through it. And it's costly, don't you see? Because Jesus died on the cross, we can never be satisfied with malice or appeasement. With always attacking or withdrawing. The more you see what Jesus did, the more it melts you down. 
If you want to graft a branch into a tree, you know how to do it, right? You take a knife and you wound the tree. You wound the branch. You have to gash and cut the tree. The more deeply it's wounded, the deeper it goes into the branch. And at the point, and only at the point that it's wounded, does the branch go in. Jesus Christ looks at you and said, I was wounded so you could come in. I was wounded to the bottom so you could come in. And when we look at that, and we can see the cost of what he did, we can live this way as living sacrifices. No matter what people have done to us, it's nothing like what we've done to Jesus Christ. You can forgive when you think, look at how much Jesus has forgiven me. And that cross changes everything, including my self-image. The reason we can be truthful and loving is because if you're a Christian, you lost face once and for all <laughs> when you admitted you were a sinner and you brought him into your life. You lost face blessedly forever. And now the thing the person has wronged you and so much is not your honor. Your performance is not your honor. Your record is not your honor. Your reputation is not your honor. What Jesus has done for you is your honor. Without the cross, you have nothing except these things that people out there in the world are attacking us for. But if Jesus is your Lord and your Savior and your righteousness, and he is your record, and he is your peace, and he is your beauty, and he is everything, they don't have anything on you. Don't worry about it. You can turn the other cheek. And it's possible. It's inevitable if you let the cross be the center of your life. And like Paul say, God forbid that I should glory in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. It's like this. When a person goes and gets a permanent at a hair salon, the, after applying the perm to the hair, the hairdresser will use a neutralizing solution to assure that the harsh chemicals don't do lasting damage to the hair. Christians are called to be peacemakers. As far as it depends upon you, be at peace with everyone. And we all have the ministry of reconciliation called by God to neutralize the harsh conditions of our culture so that damaging will not continue. In view of God's mercies, present yourselves as living sacrifices, being transformed by the renewing of your minds, using your gifts right here, loving one another, and loving those who don't even buy it, all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us all to understand what these principles mean because virtually every one of us gathered here this morning is dealing with people, classmates, co-workers, neighbors who have mistreated us or who we have mistreated. Show us the radical beauty, the profundities of the cross. 
while this all seems lofty and unattainable, characteristic of us, we ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit, bring it down to each and every one of us this morning so every one of us can see what we need to do toward those people around us. Most of all, what we need to do toward you. Because of this is impossible unless we've lost face and repented and admitted our need for you and received you as our Savior. Father, enable us to do that this morning. Give us that strong foundation and the ability and the power to live as living sacrifices in our day. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.